Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Valentine's Day, Sunday, 2021. Wow. Yeah, then how'd you wow. make out on Valentine's Day? I did quite well. Got some exquisite roses. There might be a little something else coming our way. You never oh, know. Really? Really? No, don't, nothing much. Just okay. a little something. Oh, well, you right. have a very thoughtful husband. What can I say? All right. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> okay. Good for you. I know you're probably underwhelmed by uh, what my show of appreciation. That's but right. I, I have a good excuse. Anyway. What do you think of the card? It kind of a not, not much card, but it was, you know, heartfelt. Cards are terrible these days. Yeah. I got to say. Yeah. It's, uh, well, Michael's last card to me for my birthday said on the back, says, nothing I can do about the card selection. You know, I even, actually, I was trying to send an e-card to somebody, and even the e-cards are bad. Well, that doesn't make any sense, because no, there's an infinite number of e-cards. And I went through billions. You know, you know what it is? The country's what? losing its sense of humor. That's the, the country's only... just losing its mind. Well, that too. we got to get out. <laughs> but, we got to breathe some fresh air. Uh, we got to have social interaction. Part of it is losing its sense of humor. That's the first uh, symptom of losing its mind. Uh, yeah, that's a problem. But uh, so here's an effect of COVID, which uh, I don't know what to say. There's an article in the Times which says uh, France's late, latest COVID measure, letting workers eat at their desks. I said, what do you mean letting workers eat at their desks? What are you talking about? The article says that the labor ministry in France says it will allow French employees to eat lunch at their desks. To combat the coronavirus. What do you mean? In other mean? words, so you don't go out. I, I know what it means to eat at your desk, but it turns out, uh, and I'm just like wide-eyed, uh, that uh, eating at your desk in France is forbidden under the French labor code. It's illegal to eat lunch at your desk. Yes. And they say why. They, they say... <laughs> yes, they say why... Uh, they say why? Because it's part of the French labor law. Uh, they feel that uh, allowing uh, you know employees to eat at their desk uh, would uh, be you know anti labor. It's, it's it's consistent with France. Well, it's the nasty capitalists. The capitalist. The know, nasty capitalist. Trying to squeeze every ounce exactly. of work. So they made it illegal. So not they, even letting them go out for lunch. But it's insane. And the French say, you've got to go out for lunch. Let me tell you something. Eating is important. For the phrase... You need a break. For the phrase hyper-regulation to even appear in the New York Times is is something. And it could only be in France because, uh, you know, the Times believes in regulation. But this is hyper-regulation. I get it. The article does explain, they have quotes from all these dutiful French persons who say things like, we French and you Americans have totally different ideas about work. It's a catastrophe, it's a quote, it's a catastrophe to a eat at your desk. A catastrophe. A catastrophe. You need a pause to refresh your mind. I, you know, I can make that case, but it's illegal? Well, it, I, all right, I've, I've said enough. But I, I uh, think, isn't Macron going to make it not illegal or something? But now it's not illegal. Okay. So anyway, um, but uh, it just underscores yeah. what we were talking about last week. The, the French, the French are, are different. different. The French are different. Their culture, which is, is why we're watching different. French television like crazy. Yeah. Because yeah. again, 
you know, we continue to watch. Uh, it's true, and I, I'm just Coyer delighted Agent. that we're not all the same. Well, Coyer Agent, and Coyer Agent is worldwide. quite entertaining, and uh, Lupin is quite entertaining, and I'm learning French. I don't know about you, but I'm not. I'm hardly looking at the subtitles. <laughs> right. I'm getting it all. Right. I'm getting it all. The greatest thing, of course, we've noticed in these things, shows like this with the subtitles, is that every once in a while we turn up the volume. <laughs> like uh, I'm not, you know, this I need louder to follow the show, and of course, we're, it's subtitles. Why do we need that? But, uh, but uh, no, it's nice to hear the language. Yes, nice to hear the language and the music. Okay, well, in any event, talk about things which are, you know, mind blowing. You have an article that's mind. blowing Oh, I don't know if this is mind blowing. Blew my mind. But really? Yeah. Blew your mind? Yeah. You're kidding. I know. I'm entirely serious. All right. So this is an article about. Stonehenge. Right. I mean, we all know Stonehenge, right? It's that circle of trilophons, megaliths uh, near uh, Bath. Did you say trilophons? Yeah, trilophons. Oh, like I don't know what that is. Lith means stone, yeah. okay? Like Neolithic age, New Stone Age. And trill? Tri, tri yeah. is three. Okay. So you know how the they've got the three, the two yeah. sticking up yeah. and one across? Right. That's three stones. That's a trilophon. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, yeah. uh, we know what Stonehenge is, yeah. and, uh, you know, there was actually an, another, um, article about Stonehenge recently about there's going to be some tunnel, a major highway going like right under oh, really? Stonehenge. Really? Yeah. It's good. They've been discussing it for years. It's about time. And, it's and, about uh, time. I don't know. What if it knocks it down? Are they I don't call, think it's so good. Is it going to call the Lincoln Tunnel? Lincoln no. Tunnel. No. No. Okay. Lincoln wasn't involved in this. But, uh, anyway... It's, you know, it's a Neolithic monument yeah. built, you know, starting in 3,000 well, BCE. huge, incredibly large, heavy stones. You've never been there. No, of course not. The children and I, and I have been there. Oh, you guys and, get around. And it is yeah. indeed magical. Yeah, is it? Yes. I've even seen a, a video of Obama visiting Stonehenge. <laughs> And he so, thought so, it was magical oh, as well. So there it goes. Uh, now, we, now we know. I'm not sure you can get up very close anymore you know who could get up close obama probably got up close he got up close yes. and we got up close he but i think people. now it, it might be uh, can you walk right underneath the trellis there oh yeah we could i mean basically you could touch them i don't think we touched them but yeah. you, we, we were right there but this is not okay the stones... anyway the question is the question's always been how did they get there well here's the strangest okay. thing the strangest thing according to this article is it the, the article suggested it was originally somewhere else Yes, in Wales. Yeah. Now, of course, people have been talking about the stones coming from Wales, some of the stones, the blue stones coming from Wales. Where was I? For years. I, I hadn't heard yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's old news. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the question is, did they come by water? Did they come up some hill? Well, that's around? the part that blows my mind. Um, but uh, Now there's evidence that there there's a site in Wales. They're able to microscopically, you know. Identify there was a site in Wales. No, identify where the stone came from. You know, that there right. were stones uh, elsewhere. Right. So they've been looking in Wales for, you know, where these stones could have come from. They actually found, yeah. uh, after a lot of trial and error, uh, um, an error on the part of modern fancy tools, crazy yeah. tools. They kept saying, no, there's nothing here. No, there's nothing here. No, there's nothing here. And they just started to dig and they found stuff. So they found a location in South Wales, yeah. that uh, where there seems to have been yeah. some of these blue stones standing upright. Yeah. And the more they dug, the more they found, the more stones, remnants of stones, or uh, evidence that stones had been 
standing in a particular formation okay. in this so, location. So, so the suggestion is the that it was originally is there. The thought is that this was some kind of monument, yeah. perhaps representing ancient ancestors, and that somebody decided to move it yeah. over to right. what we call okay. England. So this is mind-blowing okay. for two reasons. And, yeah. and, the question is why. Yes, well, maybe why? there was like why a, is the well, number the people, one question. Well, maybe the people were leaving. There was a migration, and they wanted to okay. take the ancestors first, first, with the them. The first question is why, yeah. and the second question is how, because these well, are incredibly large question. and huge stones. Right. The, the 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 person they quote in this article, Dr. Parker Pearson, yeah. favors a land route over which the massive stones, the really big ones, yeah. Um, not the really big ones, the uh, medium-sized ones, actually, weighing up to four tons each, could be hauled on rows of poles and wooden sledges by as many as 400 people. And and how long a distance was that? Um, you know, now you're asking me hard questions. I think it's several hundred miles. Yeah, okay. it's far away. Yeah, so it's this is insane, okay? It's one thing to say, well, people decide it would be nice if it was somewhere else. It's another thing to actually feel so strongly about it that you enlist a thousand people to do it. I mean, that's insane. Well, that tells us a lot of interesting things, though. Uh, it, it points out the sophistication of the society. It's not for nothing that yeah. somebody can corral all these people and get them to agree to do a major project yeah. like this. And yet, okay? we have no There's idea what the reason of, was. I don't know, cooperation oh. or fear right. or whatever here. Um, so that's quite interesting. Yeah. But it is also very interesting that there was a Stonehenge formation somewhere, and we think it was recreated where it is now. Yeah. I, so it's still, it's it's still a lot of mysteries. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, now you say it's interesting that there, there was a reason, and yet we have no clue what the reason, and, and it must have been one heck of a reason to get everybody lined up to do this. So uh, more, just more Well, they questions. didn't have a lot going on. Yeah, okay. That was it. They only so, got three television channels. There was no cable. Why do it? I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, I'm not doubting it. You know, it's still, I'm not it's, doubting it's exciting. It. You go to Stonehenge and just a few stones standing around, yeah. right? Yeah. It's amazing. We can still be discovering yeah. things about right. these stones. Well, Barack you know, Obama's no on it. no written evidence. You know, this is uh, all sort of just uh, using modern technology and imagination. Yeah. Okay, so here, this is another mind-blowing article. A new crop of companies is offering consumers an unusual way to transform how they eat with the promise of improving metabolic health, boosting energy levels. And it sounds like every late-night TV it does. ad I've ever seen. But here's the how way you do it. You find the foods that are best for you by seeing how they, they affect your blood sugar levels. Okay. Uh, and there are standards as to what your blood sugar level uh, should be, and there are some foods which cause the blood sugar level to spike, and that's not some, that's something you want to avoid because it results in sluggishness, it can result in a weight gain, uh, you know, it, it leads to diabetes, type two type, diabetes, right. or something. Yeah, so or there's is evidence. That there's a legitimate interest in your blood sugar level. All right, so, so sounds, well, here's something else you see on late night TV. So late TV, you see on late night TV even earlier than late night TV, devices that will check your blood sugar level that don't require the prick of your finger because people with diabetes usually have to prick their finger and now they can buy devices. You put a little patch on your shoulder and with your 
uh, phone, you can check your blood sugar level. And they sell these uh, these patches and, uh, and the app and whatever it is on late night TV and it's covered by insurance, blah, blah, blah. Well, what this article says is this is these companies are now selling the service for everybody. In other words, you don't have to have diabetes. You get something out of this, they say, whether you have diabetes or you don't. Well, of course they say that, Dan. They want to sell This the is in the New things. York Times. This is not an advertisement, Dan. You know, this is just some plant by No, no, no. I'm telling you, Dan. They're just trying they to sell me. these things. All right, let me give you Are you, you a... really going to do that? Are you really... I, so I the... read the article. They have some guy who... Some guy did the it. The person... He did it. ...writing the article so, says... Let me yeah. give you a real yeah, case. it turns out I ate this salad. Right. And then it spiked. It shouldn't spike. Must have been the sugar in my balsamic vinegar. There you go. The... Who knew? So let, let me back up because Must no one else sugar has read the article. sugar Denny's balsamic guy, vinegar dressing. Anahad O'Connor uh, writes that um, he, he, he found by using this he, device he, that there were yes. some foods. Is this a, a he or a she? No idea. Anahad. That... Uh, <laughs> That the that protein bars and chickpea pasta would cause his blood sugar levels to spike. Who knew? And then one day he this says, is "This person yeah. said I ate a salad with grilled salmon and noticed it caused my blood sugar to soar." I soon realized I drenched my salad in balsamic vinegar, which it turns out contains a lot of sugar. Did you know balsamic vinegar? Contains- no, I'm not even sure I believe that. I, what I just I, said I to understand. you, it was probably some balsamic vinegar dressing. He switched to red wine vinegar yeah. and voila. Yeah, this he's is back fabulous. on the road. Right. Well, are we Call all going to be back when you have something interesting? Are we gonna, all going to be wearing these patches soon? That's what I like. This is a huge market. This is ready to go. This is co- monitoring. This is Tamsin. You laugh it off. You laugh it off. But you, I can see people doing this. Are you going to do this? No, I don't do anything. Not in a million years. All right. Okay. All right. It's look, a, look, you heard it here if, first. If, and All right. Does All right. the does the author of that article relate anything besides his, the findings? That, oh, you know, no. my blood sugar soared. These be- companies are investing in selling it this way. They're betting on people is wanting to buy it. Is he or she any healthier because of it? Well, this is just one no, article. They're just trying to sell their thing. All right, all right. All right. You're a skeptic. I'm, I'm embarrassed. You know, you fall for this New York Times stuff all oh, the time. Is that right? Not me. I'm interested in history, like the history of cemeteries. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Talk you know, about all the time. Of course, I enjoy the history of cemeteries because yeah. to me, it's a history of culture. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're just talking about Stonehenge. Maybe some, you know, started out as, as sort of a cemetery. There are, there are evidence of human bones in the original Aubrey holes, pits around. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but uh, there's an article in the New York Times about a pet cemetery. Yeah. And it uh, really, the headline is about the most popular name for pets. You can tell that. By you know uh, why? examining the you know data why, at you, the cemetery. You know why that's the headline? What? Because no one except you would read an article about pet cemeteries. So the the headline in the article highlights, gee, what are people naming their dogs? That might get people interested. <laughs> and it turns out that... In the, the 19th century. The name that props up most often in these headstones is... For dogs. Is... Princess. Princess. Okay. okay. Great. For dogs only. For cats. What? Tiger. Oh. Hmm. Okay, and uh, they postulate that that's uh, because of um, that there was a new breed of domestic cat, that the tabby cat with stripes like a tiger. Oh. So maybe everybody's calling. Uh, they also mentioned that in the 30s and 40s, 
the popular names were Queenie and Tippy. These are cats or dogs? L- dogs. Yeah. Lady ruled the 1960s. Of course, Lady and the Tramp. This is all based on the. the, the this stones. is all based on just uh, the, the names recorded on the tombstones. In the yeah, right, right, right. So you might want to ask, you know, when did this all come about? Okay, when were pet cemeteries invented? You might ask that. Okay, right, yeah. and uh, this one in Hartsdale, yeah. New York, was founded in 1896. Oh my God! Now, cemeteries pretty much begin in the early 19th century. Okay, okay. if you think for of, people, you, you think well. People were generally buried, like, in the backyard right. you know, in the, or in the churchyard. Right. And people generally wanted to be buried mm. in the churchyard with their family, etc. But churches were running out of room, right. uh, especially in urban locations like Paris. Napoleon says, uh, you know, time for a purpose-built cemetery. And voila, yeah. we have Père Lachaise. In like, I don't know, 1903 or something like that. So it takes a while for those cemeteries to get going because people want to be buried at their church. All right. And uh, what they do is, and I've said this before, I think they import the bones of famous people and bury them at Lachaise. Okay. To encourage other people who want to be buried near them, like Moliere. And Abelard and Eloise, et cetera, famous mm-hmm. French. And, you know, and this uh, ploy will be used also in the U.S. Now, the U.S. Uh, first cemeteries are uh, like in the 1830s. You have right. Mount Auburn. Are we getting to the, the pet Boston cemeteries area, at a certain point? And you have in Philadelphia, <laughs> yeah. you have the Laurel Hill Cemetery. Right. I know okay. we're getting to that. Yes. All right. And these are glorious places. Right. And... The key thing about cemeteries is they served as like an extension of the home to some extent for Victorian families. So you think of a family cramped in some kind of urban tenement living situation. You could go out to the cemetery and be in the fresh air. And you're saying to me, but what about the public parks? No, I'm saying, what about the pet cemeteries? Cemeteries what? were the first public parks. Yeah, we. I know this. You told you me You know this. all this. You okay. just told me this. Good for you. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, one of the great cemeteries yeah. that you've been in yeah. that didn't impress you at all. Naturally. Uh, was Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which has fantastic monuments right. and plenty of interesting people buried right. there. Right. Now, in uh, 18, what is it? 81, a wealthy widow named Rose Howe buried her pug Fanny Howe in the family plot at Greenwood after an elaborate funeral involving a glass top coffin. People found this offensive. And hence the birth of Pet Cemetery. cemetery. I knew we'd get there eventually. Pets were buried there. And uh, I think they say that uh, at a certain point, because so the cemeteries, the human cemeteries outlawed pets being buried okay, there. Right. Okay. So if people wanted to be buried with their pets, yeah. they're buried at the pet cemetery. Wow. You guys saw your people at the pet cemetery? Yes. Oh, wow. Um, so anyway, so, you know, right. cemeteries are just a, a, another way of learning about cultural, I don't know, cultural, what do you call it? cultural 
behavior behavior yeah okay, okay. and style mm -hmm. and lifestyle mm -hmm. etc right. uh, just like the many other things we look at and and, and the um, pet cemeteries tell us some, something as well they also in terms of the names uh, there was a you know to some extent people there there are people who always name their cat the same thing or always name their dog the same thing the dog mm -hmm. right. is always uh, you know in this case uh, the winner at Hartsdale is Virgo mm -hmm. Uh, in one area of the cemetery, there are 13 Virgos in one family plot. Wow. Okay. Okay. It's damn confusing. Princess. You, see, <laughs> you say Virgo, you get 12 dogs run up. I, big, yeah. Big uh, okay. a lot of dog name. I hope those are all girl dogs. I mean, uh, otherwise it's uh, confusing. But okay. Okay. Um, so here's something, which I, I don't have a lot to say about this. I just, uh, it's another uh, double take. A wallet lost in Antarctica is returned 53 years later. That's right. A guy who... Uh, Why is that surprising? How many flights are there between uh, Antarctica and 53 anywhere? years. Paul Grisham was working as a meteorologist in Antarctica, working for the Navy in the 1960s. He doesn't even remember losing his wallet, but apparently he did. He had a 13-month <laughs> stint in 1967, and uh, recently he was contacted by someone who said that they uncovered his wallet, uh, which had been lost apparently 53 years ago, uh, which is kind of crazy. The wallet uh, contained a beer ration punch card. You're only limited a certain amount of beers. His military ID card, receipts from money orders, uh, you know, a recipe for Kahlua, as one does and an atomic, biological, and chemical warfare pocket reference, as one does. So um, he said, well, he's very proud of the beer ration punch card. It only has four punches in it, although he said he drank for martinis rather than beer, so he was very much paying attention. Uh, but that's bizarre, 53. So what this brought to mind to, for me is the time that you found that earring uh, yeah. in front of the house. After, what was it? Several years. Several years, right? Yeah, that happens to me. Well, but years in between. What the odds against that happening were a zillion to one. How did somebody find the wallet? Uh, they were just out digging in. They, in they were. Is it? Is it a? Um, no, they explained it. Greenhouse gases thing. No. Is the iceberg melting and the wallet uh, popped they, up? They they demolished what's something called McMurdo Station. That the place that Grisham was based on. When they, during the demolition, they were cleaning up prior to the demolition. And they came up with this wallet. There's probably more to this story. It's probably like he switched identities or something. I, I, I don't know. He lost 53 and he years. had to hide the didn't wallet. didn't even remember hmm. losing the wallet. I'm highly suspicious. All no right. cash in the Move wallet. Move along and get back to me when you get some interesting uh, All right, here's something. I have something stories. interesting right now. And this, if you don't find this interesting, well, oh boy. you're hopeless. After a home run explosion, Major League Baseball will reduce bounce in baseballs. That's right. For the first time in years, Major League Baseball is reversing the trend that has resulted in more home runs every year. And every year, the pitchers complain that the balls are more tightly wound. And as a result, they bounce more. They bounce off the bats. They go farther. And there are more home runs. They, I thought they always denied that. No, well, the pitchers don't deny it. The pitchers allege it. No, but Major League Baseball denies it. It turns out... That while well, Major League Baseball does deny it, you're absolutely right about that. It turns out, according to this article, Major League Baseball just doesn't know. They do. Uh, they have a lot of different people making baseballs. A lot of them are hand sewn, 
and they say, you know, uh, hard to tell. Hard to tell how bouncing the balls are. fake out? Well, no, no, no. The last few years, the home run rates in baseball, the, the four ye- seasons with the greatest years of home runs, except for one exception I'll come back to, uh, have been the last four years. And before that, there was a year that everyone was using steroids uh, back in 2000 that people hit a lot of right. home runs. But, um, uh, you know, baseball took a strong stand. Oh, no, the baseballs are the same. Well, they had no idea whether the baseballs were the same because they didn't, the same because they didn't have a strong standardization process. Now they're implementing a strong standardization process. The balls are going to be a little bit lighter. They're going to be a little less tightly wound. And as the result, an average ball hit 375 feet will now go 373 feet because of the change in the balls. They're going to stem the tide of the home runs. I don't know if it's going to make much of a difference or not. But, so, but all of a sudden they can standardize? Yeah. And they well, couldn't for... But you were right. You're, you're right to really put your finger on. There's a little bit funny business going on in baseball. Number one, you'll be interesting to know that even though there are more home runs every year for the last few years, there are fewer runs scored. Because people strike out more and they just swing as hard as they can and they don't play baseball the right way. Okay? <laughs> that's number one. And the other point here, and here's something that's going to... I just want your reaction. Sort of a woman on the street reaction. Okay? They said that, uh, and this is in the memo on this subject that MLB issued, five more teams have applied for and received permission to store balls in humidity-controlled environmental chambers, known as humidors, for the 2021 season to help combat the effects of a site's lack of moisture, which makes balls fly farther. In other words, there have been a few places that traditionally kept balls in humidors so they weren't so terribly dry and the ball wouldn't travel quite as far because the conditions there were super dry. Putting aside what those places were, there were just a couple. There are five new places, and one of them, one of the teams, is the Mets. And I'm saying the Mets. I mean, the others are like the Colorado Rockies. It's a little dry in Colorado. The Arizona Diamondbacks, I understand that. But is it exceptionally dry? In Queens? No. So, what's going on? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe somebody uh, had some cigars they wanted to put in the humidor. <laughs> in the humidor. Instead of there writing it off as being for the baseballs. <laughs> well, that's as good as an explanation as any. Look more closely. That tells that. you the way baseballs Dang. run. They say the time. That's right. They they didn't question it. They said, "Yeah, it's very dry in the Queens. In the Queens, very yeah. dry." It's for the baseballs. It's <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> Right. You're probably right. So here's an article I normally we wouldn't look at. Yeah. It's uh it's about ski patrol. Normally no one would look at, honestly. <laughs> and uh you know, we don't downhill ski. And uh um so why would we care about ski patrol? But yes. we have a ski patrol uh segment of the family. Yes. Yes. Well and especially because this is about Women in ski patrol. In fact, the women, the our ski patrol segment is female. Yes. Okay. Well, segments. So, is, yeah, component. Pepper, yeah. Pepper Abuhoff's grandmother and mother, Pam Borg, yeah, uh, has been working since uh, the late '80s. Careful with that. Yeah. As as a ski patrol person. as a volunteer in Colorado, uh, ski patrol. Right. She's a nurse, 
So she brings a lot of medical, especially emergency medical expertise to the situation. Now, ski patrol people, what they do is they haul things around and they haul people, injured people. Right. They take them safety. down the mountain after um, they get hurt. You know, uh, they're patrolling uh, the uh, trails or whatever. And so the article in the Times is pointing out that um, there are more and more females involved in this. Yes. Now, I should mention not only Pepper's grandmother, but her mother, yeah. Noelle right. Borg, um, has, has actually worked as... Uh, Junior volunteered ski- as junior junior ski patrol on a snowboard that's right which seems so impossible to well, to be pepper i can't even pepper is the next got her own ski snowboard coming her way it, you know junior it's, it's news to me that you could be an emergency you know help person on first a, responder on the snow on a snowboard oh no no the article no, that, is no, about these women there. one's on a snowboard one's on, yeah. they're on a well, snowboard why is that so and, in fact, and in fact that in the article they mentioned that a father actually goes over to a ski patrol person a woman says, ski patrol person and says uh, my daughter's so impressed that you do this on a snowboard she wants to yeah. uh, be a ski patrol someday herself no she just wants to use a snowboard I think but whatever the, the, the fact of the matter is that uh the article, talk about phony articles. You know, it's fine that there are women doing ski patrol. It doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, and they're saying, well, now it's a bigger thing. The truth is, over the last few years, it's gone from 19% of the ski patrol people who are women to 23%. Well, in some places, it's much more. It might, and, and in some see, places, it's much less. And you see less, more women as directors and yeah. so on. But and the, the, there is... It's, it's you all know, good, but, but I mean, it's, it's, it's old news. In such, in such a... It's like firefighting, etc. It's 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 one of those professions that seems you know historically uh, male dominated yeah. because of strength, etc. Mm-hmm. Ideas about what you need to be, the the skills you need to do this. Wow. And these women are saying, actually, we can do all these, you know, hauling the toboggan of an injured person. Right. We can do all these things. We can do them a little bit smarter. And uh, we actually bring a lot to the party in terms of... Well, we uh, should ask Pam. I know, you know, Pam has never presented like she's the only woman on the mountain. So I, I don't know how, how what her experience has been. But she, you're right. She's a ski patrol person of long standing. But uh, Pam's been doing it for a while. In fact, she's been doing it for so long yeah. that they... One of the reasons you... One of the things the volunteers get out of this yeah. is uh, ski passes. Sure. And uh, so I would hope. she, I think at this point, she's earned lifetime. Is that right? Uh, ski pass mm. for her contributions. So, uh, but uh, if, well, you're, is, if it, you're out it, on Copper Mountain. It is volunteer work. Watch out uh, for um, Women's Ski Patrol. Hamburg. Well, so is she on Copper Mountain? Yeah. Don't I mention Copper Mountain in the article or am I wrong about that? Uh, I think they might. Beaver Creek. Oh, Beaver Creek. Maybe then, maybe not Copper Mountain. You're right. Beaver Creek, uh, and they do they do discuss uh, some women within uh, her age range. So I don't know if uh, yeah. Well, but most of the articles about the, someone someone who's the uh, I don't know the old hand is is forty two years old, and I'm saying to myself really because Pam... no 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 they mention directors who are like fifty nine, sixty four, okay. etc. Good. These women uh, have been uh, doing it for a while right. as well. All so right, that's interesting. We we will never. <laughs> I don't think we'll. Be availing ourselves of the skills of any ski patrol. Let's women. hope not. But 
men or women. Uh, all right. So we've been doing skiing here, and I've I've plant done some face planting here, and I've lived to tell the tale without the help of the ski patrol. So there you go. Uh, so Alan Burns passed away. So, you know, Alan Burns uh, is associated with the Mary Tyler Moore Show. He's one of the two creators, he and James Brooks. And I'm saying to myself, well, okay, that's fine. Had you ever heard of him before? Uh, yeah. But, but, but I hadn't. I don't think, he, you know, he's the, I wasn't thinking he was a major, major figure. And then I realized that he's been associated, was associated with a lot of, a lot of things that I, you know, identified as the most uh, enjoyable shows. So we had Mary Tyler Moore. Before that, I'm not going to mention everything. He was he helped develop Get Smart. Okay, that's something. When he started, he 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 worked on the Bullwinkle Show, and he wrote for the Moose. Okay, he wrote for the Moose. No question, you love Bullwinkle, and and he wrote sometimes for Rocky too, the Squirrel. And to me, just to show all base are covered, he helped create the series My Mother of the Car. Another the, classic. The sitcom that starred Jerry Von, Jerry Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke's brother, with, uh, do you remember who was the voice of his mother in the car radio? No. Ann Southern. Oh. Uh, and, which I I was disturbed to see that uh, the Times described my mother the car as a notable flop considered by some to be one of the TV's worst shows. But we all watched it. We all knew about it. Yeah. And we all remember it. And yet... It, would, they it was say, a flop. It says it was canceled after one season. If you I, had told me that it ran for 12 seasons and it was the most honored show of its time uh, slot, I would say That's yeah. really funny. I can't believe we all remember it. It was only on one season. Yeah. Well, in any event. So, uh, kudos. What can Alan I say? Burns. Wrote for Bullwinkle. Uh, so, he was no flash in the pan. And the other obituary we'll mention today is Joe Allen. Who uh, restaurateur? Restaurateur who in ran, uh, New York City, right? Forty six. You've been there. Well, we've look, been there. Forty six Street is called Restaurant Row, but it wasn't always Restaurant Row. It turns out, turns out it's Restaurant Row because at the beginning, Joe Allen, who worked uh, on the East Side, uh, decided to go to the West Side. He didn't want to deal with advertising executives as clients anymore. He thought actors would be more interesting, and he opened a restaurant on Forty Sixth Street called Joe Allen. And then it was Orso, another of his restaurant restaurants. And then he later uh, opened a bar, which just above them. Uh, and um, he was very successful. I, you know... We've been there. What's stunning is... My there, mother even has been there. Is that right? Yes. I didn't know that. When we... Um, it was the place to we go. We all went to Broadway that night and she had a broken foot. And uh, she and Sadie went to see... They didn't see hairspray. What did they no, see? No, we we saw. Um, oh, oh, oh! I know what they saw. Avenue Q. Saw, they saw Wonderful Sadie, Town. Yeah, and they saw Wonderful Town. And they didn't like it we, as much as they should have. Uh, but uh, we went with Donna for Murphy. Donna Murphy, the great at Donna Joe Murphy. Allen. Did we? Yes. Oh. Your mother had broken because foot. A, then you know, kind of a steakhouse kind of place. Well, something for everybody. It's a, you know, it's a casual place. Uh, it's, it's a place to get a hamburger and a glass of wine. Which I think is fair, yeah. Uh, and uh, catered to actors, and you always had a chance to see an actor there. Not we, necessarily. We never saw any actors. No, we never saw any actors, but we saw your mother there. And uh, but we, there might have been actors there, but we just—they didn't have a sign on saying "Hello, <laughs> I am a real actor." I, I, I think if you went late, you had a better chance. Uh, so, but this guy—you know—I think his look—he he was. He said he didn't ingratiate himself. He wasn't an active host. He didn't want to inflict himself on the customers. He said he was very much an introvert. 
But he said, it doesn't mean I didn't pay attention. I paid attention to everything. The menu, the salt, the ketchup, everything. This is a retail business. I didn't say I lacked ambition. I wasn't lazy, okay? Um, he looked a little bit like Humphrey Bogart. He looked a little... Well, apparently he was friends with Lauren Bacall. Who says he doesn't look... He didn't look like Well, her not husband. that much, yes. Yeah. She, she, she didn't but have he, any trouble does, distinguishing to, the two of them. To the casual uh, He has the same eye. laconic uh, manner. And, uh, yeah, so the articles are all about all the celebrities who, who were there all the time. And there's even one that... Uh, oh, there's some funny stories. He actually dated Elaine Stritz for a long time. And when she, uh, oh, not forget Elaine Stritz, Elaine, the woman Elaine who who ran Elaine's, which was a famous restaurant. They have a story where when she opened, he gave her a case of Heineken and said, here you go. Uh, he gave her this case and said, sell it back to me, which is about what she did. And um, he uh, was, he dated Cheetah Rivera for a long time. Um, and they have all these reminiscences of these various actors who uh, who knew him, uh, you know, Nathan Lane, Cheetah of Rivera, as I mentioned, Donna McKechnie. Um, they have a funny one uh, uh, from Joel Gray, which is the only one I'll refer to here. Um, obviously, Joel Gray being around for a long time. And uh, he said, Joe was very sharp. He missed nothing. He just was a great lover of the theater, and he had a kind of air about him of watching over everything and not saying a word except when everybody left and he had a few, then he would tell you plenty of stuff. So, uh, but it's amazing the impact he had. There were three different big articles about Joe Allen mm -hmm. when he passed. Mm -hmm. uh, and fine. Well, uh, he sounds like a, an iconic New York personality. Yeah, a real New York figure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know. And there was a cute story about a younger actor who uh, applied for a house account oh, yeah, yeah. at the restaurant oh, yeah, yeah, and was, was so overjoyed when he gets uh, authorized for a house account. I didn't even know restaurants uh, still did house accounts. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the other funny thing they mentioned is that he had a wall where he put the playbills of all the biggest flops. Actually, posters. Posters, playbills. posters. From all, you're Enormous right. posters. Enormous posters, you're right. So you I can see it you could walk in and be humiliated right. or reminded. And there are some actors who said they were honored to see that their show was represented by a poster. And there are others who said they were thrilled that they just managed... You know, it's the producers that they discussed who were thrilled that they managed to escape having uh, their biggest flops uh, on the wall because that would have meant they were losing a lot of money. Um, but, uh, you know, it sounds like he was a really good guy. Um... All right, we got to go. We got candles to light. Yes, and uh, Valentine's Day isn't over. That's all I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll see you next week. This is right. Dan Abuhoff. And Tamson Granger with Tamson and Dan read the paper. See ya. Bye.